This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This is the sixth in a series of episodes that come from the Game Changer and Big Think Speaker Series in the whatschoolcouldbe.org archives. To join future conversations, go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. Keep in mind the audio comes from Zoom and YouTube Live webinars, so expect a couple of bumps and knocks along the way. On the other hand, the conversations you will hear are incredible for their depth and insight into what school could be and what could be school. Pittsburgh has spawned two major contributions to educating our youth, Mr. Rogers and Remake Learning, which will be the focus of today's rebroadcast of a YouTube Live session back in 2021. You will meet Remake Learning's founder, Greg Baer, and his co-author, Ryan Rydzewski, of their book about Mr. Rogers, titled When You Wonder, You're Learning, released in 2021. You'll be flooded by childhood memories and marvel at how the values of Fred Rogers pointed us to such an inspiring vision of education. This 2021 Game Changer conversation was hosted by Ted Dintersmith, author, film producer, innovation expert, and 2018 recipient of NEA's Friend of Education Award. Greg Bear is the executive director of the Grable Foundation and a father and children's advocate whose work is inspired by his hero, Fred Rogers. For more than a decade, he has helped lead Remake Learning, a network of educators, scientists, artists, and makers he founded in 2007 to international renown. Formed in Rogers' real-life neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Remake Learning has turned heads everywhere, from Forbes to the World Economic Forum, for its efforts to ignite children's curiosity, encourage creativity, and foster justice and belonging in schools, libraries, museums, and more. A graduate of the University of Notre Dame and also Duke University, Greg holds honorary degrees from Carlo University and St. Vincent College. He is an advisor to the Brookings Institution and the Fred Rogers Center and has been cited by Barack Obama and the Disruptor Foundation as an innovator and thought leader. Ryan Rydzewski is an award-winning author, reporter, and speechwriter whose science and education stories span everything from schools to space travel to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. A graduate of the University of Pittsburgh, he taught elementary school in Southern Louisiana before earning a master's in fine arts in nonfiction writing from Chatham University. And now, here is the rebroadcast of a 2021 Game Changer conversation hosted by Ted Dintersmith with Greg Bear and Ryan Rydzewski.
I want to welcome everybody to a very special night tonight. What I'm so excited about, we have Greg Bear and Ryan Radzewski. One day after the launch of their brand new book about Mr. Rogers, When You Wonder You're Learning, just some quick introductions. So, so Ryan, we met it five years ago. He has a great background. So he taught, I think, in Louisiana, correct? Correct. Yep. And before the book, I had seen some of his articles and I said, this, this is a gifted writer. I mean, he writes beauty um, and he's written, you know, articles, he's written poetry, and now he's written this amazing book. Um, he's a Pittsburgh native, so we're going to have a great time talking to him. It's like so much fun to introduce Greg Bear. You know, and, and I often think, you know, like in your life, you're lucky if you meet people that are wonderful. And in your life, you're lucky if you meet people that are incredibly capable. And then you meet Greg and he's both. He was the founder of Remake Learning, which has been a highly, highly influential and important organization. Uh, we met, I think, at the White House in 2016. That may have been our first time of meeting. And um, just has done remarkable things. And so they teamed up on this book. As soon as I heard they were teaming up on something, I said, this will be amazing. But I'd like to start hearing from both of you about the impact Mr. Rogers had on you when you were growing up. Well, Ted, it is a joy to be here with you. Um, you're a hero of mine in my adult professional career, and it's just joyful to be here. So thank you. And look, I'm a Western Pennsylvania kid, and Fred Rogers filmed his iconic television program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right here in Pittsburgh at WQED, America's first public television station. So Fred Rogers is in the water here in the three rivers of southwestern Pennsylvania. And Look, I, I grew up with him watching that show almost daily with my brother, you know, oftentimes with my mom. And he was that loving, caring individual that I experienced on my TV and that took me, you know, from crayon factories to looking at spoons. And he was someone I spent my mornings with as a kid. And I'm not from, from Pittsburgh originally. I'm from Erie, which is, it might as well be Pittsburgh. It's only two hours away. And it was the same, the same thing for me. I watched Mr. Rogers every day. And, um, I loved that he had a traffic light in his living room. I thought that was so cool. I thought that the trolley that disappeared into the neighborhood of Maple Leaf was amazing. And um, I think like a lot of people, I, the specifics of the neighborhood faded over time. And what was left was sort of this emotional nostalgia for a person who just made me feel good and made me love learning. And um, to rediscover that as an adult, as I'm really excited to talk more about, has just been, it's been such a pleasure. And, and how, with the two of you, how did the, the idea for this book come together? Well, in some ways, Ted, this is a book literally three years in the making. In some ways, it's 15 years in the making. You mentioned Remake Learning. And Remake Learning, as we sit here today, is a network of more than 600 schools, museums, libraries, early learning centers, after-school programs, creative industries collectively working to advance innovative relevant, engaging, equitable learning for kids and then the adults in their lives in this region. And I mentioned this to say, if we look back at 2006 and 2007 as, the, as this work got underway, we had a sensibility about Fred. We didn't articulate the Fred method the way that we talk about it today, but we often talked about these technologists and the designers and certainly the educators that we we're meeting at that time as being very Fred-like. They were people who were grounded in understanding what children are, but then also understanding the cutting edge learning sciences. So fast forward 
I think for me and Ryan, as, as Ryan is a former teacher, me as someone who tries, endeavors to be an ally to educators and certainly is a dad, you know, our aha moment was really understanding Fred Rogers as a learning scientist, right? Seeing something new in his work that was powerfully important about learning and education. And it was that aha for us that said, you know, there's a story here, not just about Fred Rogers, but about learning and how we support learning in schools, at home, in our communities. But it's a story told in something as familiar and as loving as Fred Rogers. For me, like as a, as a forward teacher and now as a science reporter, the most amazing, the aha moment really came when Greg and I were starting to look at, you know, what are learning scientists saying now? We started reading the latest research papers, started talking to some of the many amazing scientists we have right here in Pittsburgh. And I think what struck me first was that scientists today, when they talk about learning, they're talking about the importance of listening. They're talking about things like the beauty of physical spaces. They're talking about the importance of making kids feel safe, both physically and psychologically. And they're talking about things like love, like making sure kids feel loved and capable of loving. Now, those terms don't necessarily sound scientific. They sound a lot more like a script from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And when we started to hear that, I think we really realized that Rogers was, uh, in lots of ways, 50 years ahead of his time. I'm curious how you came up with the structure, because the structure I found quite powerful. You know, there are, I'll, I'll give away a little bit, but there are these six core principles or convictions of Mr. Rogers. And you've got these brilliant chapters where you start with sort of a Mr. Rogers perspective on it, pull in great research that you found all over the world, and then talk about specifics in the field. A lot of them in, in Pittsburgh, a lot of them around remake learning, but places all over. And it just sort of flows so well. But, but was that obvious from the start or did you iterate? I mean, how did you two work together and, and kind of zero in on a structure like that that I, I think proved it's absolutely proven to be very effective? Well, I've never worked with someone as, who's as brilliant with words as is Ryan, right? But I can tell you there was so much left on that cutting room floor. I can't tell you how many whiteboards we went through. And I can't say that in the writing process that we were ingenious enough to come up with that formula that you described, but the formula is exactly that. Six chapters, beginning with curiosity and creativity and moving on to four other um, sensibilities about learning that we talk often about today. But to your point, we ground you immediately at Fred Rogers in an episode of The Neighborhood. We take you back to that emotional place. And even for those who never saw the program, it's a story that's going to take you to a place that you understand. And then try and explain in modern ways the learning science that's really behind what Fred Rogers was doing 50 years ago. And then bring you forward 50 years to say, this is how this is happening all around us, in our schools, museums, and libraries. And then at the close of each chapter, try and, and make it very real, right? Something you can do in your classroom, something that you can do right in your, in your own home. Joanne Rogers, Mrs. Rogers, who wrote the forge of the book, reminded us, you know, Fred was an ascent. Fred was a human being and his work is accessible. And that's what we try and convey at the, in each chapter and certainly at the end of each chapter, that what Fred did and the blueprints he's le left us are completely accessible and we can use them today. So that framework um, is the result of a lot of whiteboard sessions. Yeah, I'm really happy to hear you say that, Ted. Um, one thing that we wanted to do from the very beginning was help readers, I think, share with us the joy of rediscovering the neighborhood as adults. Because to look back at the art 
and this and the music behind this program it's, it's really astounding and the fact that he made over 900 episodes and did almost all of it you know he had a team supporting him but he was the main creator behind almost all of them it's really incredible and perhaps the thing he was best at was sparking curiosity and that was true when we were kids it's absolutely true when we're adults and the genius of the show is you know when you're curious we talk about this in the book studies show that you're not only more likely to learn about the topic at hand when your brain's in a, a state of curiosity you're also more likely to learn about whatever else comes up so what we try to do in the book is do that same thing how can we spark readers curiosity and then by doing so make them excited about reading about learning science make them excited about revisiting a tv show that in some cases is 50 years old and make them excited to visit us in Pittsburgh and see what uh, educators are doing here and how they can apply that in their own lives. So it was, like Greg said, a um, process, often a painful process, but I love where we landed and I'm glad to hear that you like it too. Oh yeah. There are so many favorite quotes or moments from the book. And I want to come back to Joanne later on um, because she, in her own way, was an incredibly special person. And that foreword, that forward is just made me cry. But she offered up one of Fred's favorite quotes, and I'll read it here, but it's from The Little Prince. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And talked about how in the show, a lot of the detail, you know, things you just glossed over and didn't see, there was so much care and love and consideration that went into it. And I, actually, I would extend that. I'd say that a lot of the those same things are behind your book, right? There's so much, I'm sure, that, you don't see when you read the written page that was behind it. But I, I find it's, there is a bit of an irony in that because I, I would maybe modify that statement when it comes to education, which is what is essential is invisible to the standardized test designers. <laughs> but actually, interesting, Remake Learning brilliantly makes it visible to the community. Maybe talk a little bit about some of your favorite quotes, but particularly that behind-the-scenes aspect of the show. And I think it it carries through to a lot of the learning experiences you talk about and write about. So if I had to fault Fred Rogers for anything, and I far be it from me to do that, he was almost too good at hiding the science behind the show. I mean, most people like don't, we don't think about Fred Rogers as a learning scientist. We think about him as a, a nice guy in a sweater, which certainly he was. But the amazing thing about the program is that you can pick any frame, you know, from its 30 plus years it was on the air, and once you understand what he was doing, you can see the intention behind any given thing you see on the program. So when the program begins, you hear a sort of frenetic jazz music that's meant to mimic the sort of frenetic outside world. The piano slowly slows down. Mr. Rogers puts on a sweater. He changes his shoes. The traffic light that I mentioned earlier blinks yellow. All of it is meant to help kids slow down and be relaxed enough to learn. His sweaters were a device. They made us feel good. They made us feel warm. Um, he put on his sneakers because he showed us it was time to play. If you notice, he normally came in dressed in a suit, sort of uh, representing the business aspects of the outside world. Even down to the color of the walls, which when the um, program uh, went in color in the late 60s, early 70s, started with yellow walls. Eventually, he painted them blue. Blue has since been found to help kids relax. It's been found to aid creativity. Um, any given thing in any given episode from any given year is just full of these, this amazing sense of intention. 
And I think when you grasp that, you grasp the, the true genius of Mr. Rogers. And it's incredible when you think about Pittsburgh in the 1950s and 60s. In some ways, in retrospect, it was this epicenter of child development theory and practice, what today we call old child. You had here studying or working folks like Eric Erickson, Benjamin Spock, and Margaret McFarland, who worked so closely with Fred. And I mention that because it speaks to the careful attention to what he was doing, how he was doing it, how he was conveying it. And um, to your point, Ted, he made it all so seamless. You had no idea that it was there in the context of the background. And we've seen that in modern programs. I think of something like Blue's Clues. And Malcolm Gladwell writes about this in The Tipping Point and the work that Alice Wilder and others had done in working with the producers to really um, be careful about those scripts, to make sure that they were talking with kids and understood what it is that they were projecting. And that same thing is happening among master teachers in our classrooms, in our libraries. I mean, you know the magic when you see it. And so often there's so much deliberate intent and purpose behind that and careful preparation. Absolutely. So I'd be curious, each of you, um, of the six sort of backbone chapters, which is your favorite and what should people on this sort of take away? What, what resonated with that chapter and the points you made that you feel particularly proud of it? Right. I'm going to let you select your first kid first. <laughs> you know, I have changed my mind. This is the first time anyone's ever asked that, Ted, but, and I have thought about it. I've changed my mind a million times. I have a particular affinity for chapter one, just because when that chapter, when we started that chapter and we had landed on this formula that you discussed earlier, that's when it became real. But I have since decided my favorite chapter is the last chapter. It's a chapter about connection. And I think the pandemic probably had something to do with that. What we talk about in that chapter is the need to belong, the need to matter the need to know that you are part of a community. And I think in many ways, the past year has been a case study in what happens when we're cut off from those communities. I say that because I think, I thought our book was timely as we began to write it. I think it's even more timely now as we sort of enter this in-between phase where the pandemic is still very much with us, but also starting to wind down and people, including me, are craving being part of those communities again. I won't select my favorite kid from along the six chapters, but I will say, I love what Ryan said. And, and you know, Ted, chapter six in some ways was the hardest one to write. <laughs> it was the one that we were completing during the pandemic as um, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. I mean, there was just, there was so much on our minds and in the world and that we were navigating as, as people, as families, as communities. It was a hard time to be writing. And what I love about that chapter about connection, and maybe it speaks to the work of Remake Learning, because ultimately it's about relationships and the deep and caring relationships we hold with one another, but then also recognizing that learning happens everywhere. And there are folks like Valerie Kinlock and others who we interview in chapter six who speak about community wisdom and how we begin to respect the wisdom on our own front porch but sometimes it could be in the library or the museum, in addition to what happens in school and the, and the respect and value that we give to that sense that learning happens everywhere. Wisdom is all around us and how we draw upon that learning in ways that are profoundly important to kids. And I love the sensibility that ultimately comes out of chapter six. I just want to add real quick to that because Greg brought up Dr. Valerie Kinlong, who is the Dean of the School of Education here 
at, uh, in Pittsburgh, at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Kinlock, and I think this speaks to what you're trying to do, Ted, Dr. Kinlock speaks about possibility. Dr. Kinlock starts by asking children, what do you dream about that you never talk about? You know, what would you do if only you could? And how do we build learning spaces? How do we build school around that question? And I think a lot of people have been asking things like that, but to know that there is a dean of the School of Education training thousands of teachers every year, starting with that simple, powerful question, that's really, really exciting to me. And Ryan, you tell the story so well about uh, her own aha moment about learning. So let's, let's put you in Charleston, South Carolina. Valerie's growing up um, there in, in right on the low country. Uh, and she talks about her own experience of finding wisdom in the front porch, Ryan. Yeah. So I, in fact, I, I don't tell this particularly well. She tells it very well. I'm just going to read the quote. <laughs> He's talking about when she, decide, when she realized that she really loved learning. I realized that the people around me were, quote, a series of books that I hadn't been reading. Everything my teachers were trying to teach me was always right in front of me. I didn't have to open a book to read it. I could just sit and listen to the conversations happening on the front porches or at the kitchen table or even in the hallways at school. And when I realized that, that's when I fell deeply in love with learning. And I love that because it speaks to what Greg said about understanding and acknowledging that learning happens everywhere, even if we're not measuring it and respecting that kind of learning and, and finding ways to, to bring others into it. And it ties in, uh, you, you had this great anecdote early in the book with Fred Rogers, where people ask him, why aren't you teaching facts or numbers or letters or you know, things like that? And, and I'll read his quote, which was, I'd rather give children the tools for learning. If we do, they'll want to learn the facts and they'll want to build, not destroy. And what struck me as so powerful about that quote, it was getting at putting in place, setting the conditions that lead to great learning instead of what we do way too much of in, in conventional schools of just shoving it at the kids, but also reflected the true humanity of the man. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at what he was interested in and it was, it was kindness. It was, it was drawing out what makes us all human in a way that was just really powerful. And you know, I think it's exactly what you said about Valerie Kinler. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. And do you know, Ted, it was right around the millennium, one of my favorite uh, quotations from Fred Rogers, and, and I'll paraphrase, but he essentially issued a challenge and said, our great goal is to make goodness attractive. And I love that simple sensibility about what is the work that we do that makes goodness attractive? that we work toward goodness, that we value goodness, that we respect goodness, that we pursue goodness. It's a challenge for us all. And, and Fred Rogers understood that in the spark of learning, he didn't shy away from the hard work of fundamental learning, but he also knew you couldn't pursue that or you couldn't pursue creativity or curiosity or you know, collaboration absent having that physical and psychological safety to know that you could explore to know that you belong, to know that you are loved, and to know that your questions, however wild they might be, would be respected. And he understood how core that was to learning. One of the things I, I think you did a really great job of doing is connecting the dots between very young kids and the adult world. You know, you, you drew in some of the conclusions and findings of Google, who read some of the same conclusions about the importance of feeling accepted in a group in order to have a high functioning group. And, and it's 
always a bit jarring, I think, or at least it gives me optimism when you start to look at what the adult world values and you look at a philosophy of education articulated by Mr. Rogers through 25 years of shows captured so well in your book. But, you know, they're so aligned. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you said earlier about the humanity of Fred Rogers. You know, the tools for learning that we describe in the book, curiosity, creativity, communication, these are human qualities that can't necessarily be replaced by machines. And so Google, the, in the example that you brought up earlier, Google had assumed that its best managers would be the people who could write computer code in their sleep, right? They'd be the best bosses because they knew the most stuff. What they found instead were the best bosses were the people who could listen to you, people who could help you solve questions, people who could help you develop creative solutions, people who cared about other people on the team, these very human qualities that, that Mr. Rogers spent his career teaching. You know, not only are they good, I think, for kids in the moment, I think they're also going to become the things that are ultimately most valuable in the years and decades to come. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the, you found some really, you know, in some ways stunning things that you, you include in your book. And, and to this end, one of the things that just kind of just jolted me was that your stat about uh, 80% of young kids think their parents care more about their achievement than about whether they're a kind and good person. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I think I can speak to that from personal experience. You know, that's what I assumed that my parents cared about. I think that's what a lot of kids assume that that's, because that's what you talk about, you know? That you talk about the day-to-day -day business of what grades you're getting. You talk about the day-to-day -day business of what you want to do for money when you grow up. It's not that often that we make space you know, in our learning spaces, in our homes to talk about like, what kind of, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of values do you want to hold? What, what, when you look back on your life, do you want to be most proud of? Uh, again, Rogers spent a lot of time on those very human qualities. And it's interesting that when you ask those kids what they think their parents value, they say achievement, they say, uh, you know, what college you're going to get into. But if you ask the kids what they think is most important, they also say, I want to be a good person. I want to be kind. I want to make a difference in the world. So kids and adults really do care about the same thing. It's just a matter of, are we talking about those things? Are we making space for those things? Are we showing kids that we value those things? And Rogers, of course, spent 30 years doing that. I want to add to what Ryan just said. The Brookings Institution, Washington, D.C., is in the midst right now of a family engagement study. And they have data from more than 25,000 parents and teachers all around the world. I think at least a dozen locations around the world. And it's just stunning to look at the data because parents, families, and caregivers, for the most part, say that they value what happens at school as producing good, caring kids who have a sensibility about the world, who are learning what it means to learn. Whereas a majority of teachers think a majority of parents think the most important thing is getting my kid in college. So it's just, it, it speaks to, you know, when you think about teachers or parents or kids, we all have the same sense purpose, but somehow we're misaligned in our understanding of what it is that we commonly want to achieve. 
which is why this communication amongst us, the work that you've done in 50 states around these United States, these conversations are so critically important about what school could be and should be um, because we're remarkably aligned and we've allowed ourselves not to be. Yeah. If I had to pick my favorite, it might be your creativity chapter. Um, but again, it's like, it's easier when you're, you know, I relate to what you're saying about like asking you to pick a favorite out of six. It's like, they're all my favorite. But there were a couple things, points that, that came through in both of those chapters, right? Which is what happens over time for kids as they go through, uh, you know, early grades, middle grades, late grades, and then what's happened over the decades and, and neither one is working in our favor. And so in curiosity, I, the, there's not the same data there is, is in creativity, but I, you make, I think it was your writing. I don't think it was somebody's quote that, you know, curiosity can disappear in a snap. You know, it just fades away. And I think you, you call out the fact or point to, you know, like you put young kids in a group and they ask a hundred questions in an hour and you, you see the same thing I see. I mean, it's heartbreaking. You go to high schools and generally the only question you hear is, will this be on the test? But you also had this mind-blowing data. I think it was the Torrance study. I forget who did the study on creativity, but whoa, you know, it was like four or five-year-olds, they rate, 98% of them rated the creative genius. And then it just is steady decline to, you know, at age 10, dramatic drop up, age 15, huge drop up. By the time you're an adult, 2%. And, and getting worse over time, right? You know, this whole sense we've had that somehow more data, more test scores, more, you know, higher test scores, more worksheets, is working in the favor of our kids, you know, you really see it. You see it in the data, but you also see it, I think, in the pacing that, that comes through again and again with Mr. Rogers. It's very deliberate. It's purposely slow. This is not, you know, a million miles an hour, you know, like video game type of thing, but it's a very, you know, accepting and like give people time to think and explore and play. So anyway, so I'd love to get your sort of reaction to those two trends. You know, as kids get older, what's happening? And over time, what's been happening? Well, one of the individuals and organizations we cite in the book is Bill Strickland at the Manchester Craftsman's Guild, which is a world-recognized community arts center that's been replicated in places around the world. And Bill always says something so simple, environment drives behavior. And I mention that because that's, that's part of the story. We think about Think about the settings in early learning centers. Think about kindergarten classrooms. They're often just situated with lots of light, lots of color, tables and rounds, multiple adults in those settings, um, which is not the way you would describe sort of a typical high school classroom, right? If we think just about school. But we could also think about libraries or other spaces. And when we think about environment driving behavior, well, what, what is it that's happening in a teen's brain? Well, it's actually not unlike what's happening in a young child's brain. I mean, they're really, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I know enough at this point to know that the, that neural development that's happening in those very young years is being completely remapped um, in the teen years. And so why do we not then create environments that allow for that neural development to happen in a space where you're respected, 
where you feel like you belong, where you play, where you're wondering, where you're, you know, ultimately being creative and curious. And that's why things that are happening at the Manchester's Craftsman Guild or at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, as they redesign spaces, as they fill them with different types of tools, where they create a different mindset, there's joyful learning happening, which is, you know, we want those exclamation points and questions to stay behind kids' comments and statements, not just when they're four, but when they're 14 and when they're 40 and 80, right? Isn't that where great things happen in the world? Yeah, and I would add, you know, just to speak to your point, Ted, about the sort of decline of creativity with age, one of the points that I found a lot of optimism in in that chapter was the idea that non-creative behavior is learned, that the impulse within each of us doesn't necessarily go away. We just learn to stop indulging. And so we start to get self-conscious. You know, if we're not immediately good at something, we tend to put it aside. How many adults have old instruments gathering dust in their basement because we don't have time for that anymore? You know, that's something that kids do. They play music, they make up stories, they draw pictures. It's interesting that it doesn't have to be that way. You know, the decline of creativity is not necessarily a natural thing. Uh, and I'll just give you a personal example. The first thing I did when we got our, you know, part of our, one of our advanced checks, and I would advise nobody in the audience to go into writing for a big advanced check because you're going to be disappointed, but it was enough for me to go out and buy a guitar and to sit down with that and rediscover something that used to give me so much joy when I was a kid. That is contagious. You know, one of Roger's favorite sayings was attitudes are caught, not taught. Kids need to see adults being enthusiastic and creative. Kids need to see adults being curious about things that interest them. In a way, we're sort of teaching each other to not be creative, to not be curious. Rogers rejected almost all of that. And you see him in so many scenes in the neighborhood sitting by himself at the kitchen table with a pile of construction paper in front of him and a pair of scissors. And he just goes to town. And there's a quote in the book by a television critic who said one of the interesting things about that is that he does it as if, you know, he'd be doing that anyway, even if it wasn't on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And he was so authentic that I tend to believe that. I could easily see Fred Rogers at home with Joanne making a doodle or cutting something out of construction paper. And I think that we adults need to be um, a little bit more open and playful. Absolutely. You know, on the creativity front, I'm always curious about book titles. And, you know, if, if anybody out there is looking for a way to spark creativity in kids or give them a challenge, you know, ask them, you know, they've watched a show or a movie or read a book they liked. If you threw that title out, what would you replace it with? Because at least my experience, but I want to hear about yours, is coming up with a title is a really great exercise in creativity. And, and sometimes you get great titles and sometimes you, you, uh, you struggle a bit. But did yours pop up right away? Did you have some close favorites or seconds to it? Or how did that all come out? I will, I'll just say this and I'll let Greg finish because he came up with the original title, which I still really like and thought was great. The title, When You Wonder Your Learning, actually was a relatively late development in the book. Uh, when You Wonder Your Learning is a quote from one of his songs uh, about curiosity. And I mentioned this earlier, but there's a study done that shows when you wonder, when your brain is in a state of curiosity, you are actually much more likely to learn both the topic at hand and anything else that's in your environment. So there is a wonderful sort of, um, although it's a really like a whimsical song, it really shows that everything he was talking about was grounded in science. Again, he was ahead of his time. But that was not the original title. 
you might have to correct me, right? So I think the very first title was Remaking Childhood. And then it was Remaking the Neighborhood, which I still think is a fantastic title because it plays on remake learning. And so many people are following in Roger's footsteps in these modern ways. Well, and, and Ted, that was the point, right? We've made ourselves lucky by using this word remake, right? We don't talk about blowing up learning. We don't talk about even reimagining learning. What we try and do is respect that there are some, some things that are timeless and classic about learning, like the role of deep and caring relationships, as Fred Rogers taught us, but that that learning needs to be made modern for who today's kids are and what their futures hold in ways that are relevant, engaging, uh, culturally, you know, in their cultural context and identity. And so how do we match what's timeless and classic with what is cutting edge and their futures. And that whole idea of remaking, remaking childhood, remaking the neighborhood was where we started. Oh, so, okay. So we've got a question from Susie Boss, who also has a book coming out and she and Ken Kay, her co-author, will, will be talking to, to them on this forum uh, in August with her book, Redefining Student Success. But she asked a question, and I think it's great to address it both from the book's perspective, but also remake learning. How can we foster broader conversations that reveal our shared goals for nurturing, caring, creative kids? Well, part of it is just about holding space, right? When I, when I talk about what remake learning is, and you know, maybe it's easier in 2021 to talk about, here's this network, hundreds of organizations. We provide services like grants and documentation and meetups and conferences. It ultimately is a network of humans where there's the ongoing work of relationship building through common experiences of meetups, of virtual events, of travel elsewhere, of gallery tours, of things like Remake Learning Days, spaces that allow people to come together. Because if you're lucky, say you're a classroom teacher, you, if you're lucky, you might be able to go down the hall and find five people who have your sensibility about what great learning can be. But sometimes you might be the only one in your building or you feel like you're the only one in the building. And it's in that network in Remake Learning that people can find their people. But they also, the, the beautiful thing about Remake Learning is, yes, it's educators, but it's also youth workers. It's librarians, it's technologists, it's artists, it's designers. It really has brought together community. And that's where the real innovation happens when a teacher and a, and a digital technologist start to connect and realize they have a shared purpose and say, what is it that we can do together? So it's really about the continuous, unsexy work of community organizing, community mobilizing, building a community narrative about what learning can be. We put it a little plug. So Remake Learning Days launches tomorrow. You've got a busy week, Greg, but it's, that starts tomorrow, right? And you're doing it beyond Steeler Nation this year, right? Yeah, this is so fun, Ted. So when we talk about Remake Learning, we're really talking about a network of educators and professionals. We launched Remake Learning Days five years ago because we, we, we ultimately rec recognized, you know, this work could be really faddish unless we seriously engage parents, families, and caregivers and help them understand how learning is being remade, why it's being remade. If their kid is lit up by something that's not in their own experience, you know, like coding or computational thinking, maker-centered learning, arts-based youth reporting, right? Like, how do you then find the opportunities and start to think about your community as a learning landscape and then start to demand that type of learning in your school, at a school board meeting, in your parent-teacher conference? And so think about Remake Learning Days as this learning festival 
that's family-friendly and future-focused. And in that first year, 2016, there were nearly 300 events all across southwestern Pennsylvania. More than nearly 30,000 families came out. It was sort of, it blew away our expectations. This year, even in the midst of a pandemic, the work is going forward. It's happening in 17 places across America. Starting tomorrow, running through May 23rd, um, different dates across those 17 locations. But there are more than 800 events designed for parents, families, and caregivers, their teachers, and their kids to experience the joy of learning. And it might be right in their own school, could be in their community museum or library, it might be in a park down the street. But 800 events, many of which are virtual or hybrid, some of which are in person. And tomorrow it gets underway in Wisconsin, in San Diego, in Raleigh-Durham, and then in Eastern Kentucky. There are more than 800 events centered on the metropolis of Pikeville, Kentucky, starting tomorrow. <laughs> right? How awesome is that? That is totally awesome. And, and a, a different plug, but we work with you. I mean, we're, we are, are such fans of your work, but we work together uh, to come up with a couple of uh, great video resources on Remake Learning Days. They're on our, our innovation playlist. I think you've got them on your site, but it is, I've been there twice. It's just this explosion and, and just energizes people. But we have a couple questions that I think I'd love to get both of you and Ryan, particularly from the classroom teacher perspective, um, but Mike DeGuire, DeGuire asked, kids in today in school are not given, quote unquote, time to wonder due to the pressures they receive from teachers to be ready for testing. How can that change if the feds still require high stakes testing mandates for all states, which I think right now is a particularly great question. It is. And, and I wish I had um, a solution to that. You know, I, as a former teacher, I, I know the, the pressure of, of standards of testing. And I know the pressure of, you know, there are many days where I never had a chance to eat lunch, let alone give my kids time to, to sit and wonder my best advice to that. And if I were to go back to the classroom, the, the best way I would approach that is there's nothing maybe that you can do about what's imposed on you as an educator, but going back to that quote that Rogers loves so much attitudes are caught, not taught. What can you do to bring your enthusiasm, your passions into the classroom? How can you do that in front of your students in a way that is contagious? You know, maybe your students aren't necessarily, they don't want to hear you play guitar, which is what I would go in and do. But maybe in seeing something like that, give an adult such joy, they might be a little bit more open to the variety that you as an educator are, are presenting them with. And, um, Look, you know, Fred Rogers didn't shy away from hard work, right? You know, he was the consummate hard worker and he recognized the importance of dedicating, but he also recognized the importance of creating environments that, you know, change behavior about giving space. And I think you've done this so well, Ted, with your work, highlighting things like genius hour or some schools call them period X. I mean, finding places where, and time where kids can explore things that are maybe off curriculum in the presence of caring adults can pursue their opportunities. And the better schools are then thinking about how do we then start to think about portfolios and other profile work and, and interdisciplinary studies. But there are very simple things that can happen, again, whether it's in a classroom or right at home. And there's a great example in chapter one on curiosity. Hedda Sheridan, who worked with Fred Rogers for 40 years on the, on the show and continues to work at the Fred Rogers Center uh, today, 
she gives this example of walking into a classroom and in the front, she discovered something the teacher had created, which was called the ask it basket, right? Now, I'm actually not certain, and I can't recall what, what grade level this is, but let's hope it was like grade 10, right? <laughs> yeah, the idea of the ask it basket was kids have questions. And sometimes they're like, what did you just say about whatever, right? But sometimes they're like, how does that relate to something outside, right? It's like a wild question. And the great thing about the teacher is she wasn't quick to say like, oh, I have the answer for you. Or like, what a bad question. She said, hmm. she noticed the question, respected it, took a time to write down the question, put it in the basket and said, you know, we're going to come back to that ask it basket later and wonder whether she knew the answer or not. And it, to me, it's just, it's a representative tactical type of thing that suggests something about that environment that she managed, even in the midst of, you know, a mandated curriculum and other things. And it speaks to Ryan's comment, uh, you know, from Fred Rogers and Margaret McFarland that, you know, attitudes are caught. You know, that, that actually makes me more thing. I'm glad you brought that up, Craig, because Rogers, somebody once asked him, you know, what is the neighborhood? What are you trying to do with it? And he had a really interesting term for it. He called it an atmosphere. He said it was an atmosphere in which kids feel safe enough to be fully themselves. And, you know, there's a, there's an example in chapter five, we talk about a, a scientist named Joe Bowler, who some of you might be familiar with. She talks about there's sort of archetype of educator who everybody has had a teacher like this. You walk into their classroom and they say, well, half of you are going to fail or nobody ever gets an A in this class. And on one hand, that might be a sort of well-intentioned attempt to get hard work out of students. But at the same time, that conveys judgment, that conveys a sense of threat, that conveys all these things that we know from science work against learning. Kids need to feel safe. Kids need to feel relaxed to the extent that they can. Kids need to feel that they are safe enough to be fully who they are. We have a, a great, it's not a question, but it's a really appropriate observation about curiosity, but it's from Xu Pang, who, she's a preschool teacher and says her kids ask tons of questions today. Her husband is a professor for an MBA program. And the only questions he gets are, what does the final exam look like? Or will this case be on the quiz? And, and you, you realize, I mean, we do this to them, right? I mean, the kids don't do this to themselves. You know, we, we do this to them. And I have to say, there's something about the tenor and spirit of this discussion that has unleashed the curiosity of this audience because we're getting buried with great questions. You know, this is a, a great question from Jessica Coltz. Um, it, it's hard not to notice that you show up as two white men. What ways do you work to make your knowings applicable to students, teachers, administrators who come from and or work with communities of color? There are many layers to that. So first of all, you know, I think Ryan and I are working every day to recognize our privilege, right? And as someone who's in uh, a mixed marriage and whose kids are developing their identity very differently, you know, I'm, I'm very attentive to this. Um, in the book, what we try and do is... Um, uplift and elevate all sorts of examples. This isn't, we're trying to share the wisdom of many people and organizations who themselves are of all different types of communities, urban and rural, who themselves come from backgrounds that are, are black and brown and Latinx and otherwise. I mean, we try and uplift their stories and share their wisdom in the context of the learning sciences and um, grounded in, in that Fred Method blueprint. 
I would say in the work of remake learning, so much of this um, work in the network is really about recognizing that leadership is a plaza and that there are many, many hubs of leadership and that teachers trust other teachers, that museum exhibitors trust other museum exhibitors. And yes, we can create connections across and among them, but what are the ways by which we find ways to elevate educators writ large, early childhood through high school, in and out of school, in ways that they are leading the work, that their wisdom is leading the work, but then also how the work that we do um, in different ways to center the experiences of, of Black and Brown educators and learners and support and elevate their work and their voices. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and something we were very conscious of writing the book. You know, as two white guys writing about another white guy in a field, a sector education that has long been controlled by white guys, absolutely. I guess the only thing I would add to what Greg, what Greg said is, I hope that we conveyed this in the discussion, that this is not a book about us as experts. This is not a book of original research. This isn't a book necessarily of our expertise. But we do try to put forth our examples of other people who are doing this work really, really well. And I hope, I hope that we've selected examples in the book, in each chapter, that people of every background can see themselves in. Whether that's um, talking to Dr. Aisha White, who runs a program called Pride here, which is promoting positive uh, racial identity and early childhood development. What her entire job is to help kids, help black kids feel good about who they are, feel good about their heritage, their culture. That to me is a Rogers-esque mission. And I think that we've, I hope that we've found people who are following in Rogers' footsteps, but are doing so in ways that are very authentic to themselves and to where they come from. And Ted, if I may, I'm gonna, uh, I'll share a personal sh story that I've, I've been more comfortable sharing recently right? Because it's an example of how this book profoundly affected me personally and how I'm learning. Because as Ryan just conveyed, it, it's really the wisdom, not only of Fred Rogers, but it's the wisdom of Aisha White. And we mentioned Dr. Valerie Kinlock and Bill Strickland and others. So a number of weeks ago, my wife and my other daughter are upstairs. My, my older daughter is sitting behind me on the sofa I had had a long day. I just was collapsed on the floor, flipping among NCAA basketball games. And I hear in my right ear from behind me, Daddy, am I going to be shot? And it was this jarring moment. And look, I, I'll be the very first one to say I've never heard a question like that. I know for a lot of families in America, they've heard that question 10,000 times. There are many among us who are lucky that they'll never even possibly hear that question. For me, that was a reckoning moment. It was, um, it, it, my, you know, you talk about your heart going cold. Um, and it was as if this book came rushing forward and said to me, Greg, what do you do at this moment? Like, how do you be a better dad in this moment? And I just, I thought of the wisdom of the people that we elevate in this book. And I, I need to acknowledge the question. I need to notice it. I need to make sure that she feels safe physically and comfortably, I need to acknowledge that I don't have the answers. And I need to acknowledge that we're going to wonder together what that means and why she would ask that question and why things like that happen in the world. And it was the case that, uh, you know, as a nine-year-old, she's developing her identity and the, and the shooting of Asian Americans in Atlanta had come into my household here in Pittsburgh. And it's that wisdom and it's the community wisdom in this book 
that helped me in that moment. And ideally it's the wisdom of blueprints set forward by Fred Rogers and remarkable educators in our lives that comes forward in this book. We, we have another question. I want to get at this because there's some important points raised in it. It's from Chiara Monticelli, and it's public schools should value the whole, things we agree, public schools should value the whole child and support students in finding their unique gifts. The reality is revenues of a school and teachers depend on test scores. We focus more on data than on the child. How do you, or did you go around that in the public schools you were serving in Pittsburgh? I, I, I would like to just add a couple sort of qualifiers to that because, you know, I don't want anybody to get the sense that private schools or charter schools aren't focused on test score. I have found charter schools to be many that, I mean, I did a film about one that's great, but a lot of the charter schools are test prep factories. And anybody who thinks the private schools are sort of relaxed and looking at the whole child, there are a lot of unhappy kids and a lot of grind them into submission private schools. So this is a general question. But the other point, I'm sorry, I'm, I want to hear your guys' response, but you know, when I went all over the country and wrote about great things going on in our schools, I think there's an unfortunate and very wrong narrative that innovation isn't happening in public schools in America. And when my book came out, the publisher got a note from somebody saying, oh, another book saying the only schools that can innovate are charter schools. I went back and looked, 90% of my examples were public schools. There's remarkable innovation going on in public schools and our public school educators deserve that much more credit because they have to fight some of these state-mandated regulations that the other schools don't have to deal with. So anyway, so that's a bit of my soapbox and sorry to do that. But I mean, you know, I'd love to get your sense of how you deal with that in Pittsburgh in terms of the, the focus on test scores. And I think that's really core and integral to what you do with Remake Learning. Yeah, well, and I, look, I'll be the first one to acknowledge, roll the clock back 10, 15 years. I was, I was part of the narrative, not dismissive of teachers, but dismissive as schools as being stuck in that 20th century industrial factory model. When the reality is all along, maybe not the systems, but certainly the people in the systems, those teachers, were innovating all along the way in the most creative ways possible. And we need look only at these last 13 months to notice that there is no other profession, maybe outside of the health field, that has been more deft more flexible, more creative, more imaginative than our teaching field. Teachers are incredible what they do, and they've long been innovators in the magic of what they do in classrooms. And so our responsibility as communities, and especially those who aren't educators, who are trying to support the field of education and our families and our learners, is to do the work of community organizing and community advocacy. One of the things that we're doing right here in southwestern Pennsylvania right now, and together across the state of Pennsylvania, is um, the work of what is it that we want on the other side of this pandemic? This work began last spring. It's ongoing right now. We have a statewide panel on innovative teaching and learning, and we're working closely with the Pennsylvania Department of Education to say, what is it that we have done so brilliantly? Recognizing that there are incredible dark spots. There's trauma. There are serious problems that we need to address. 
But one of the things that we've done right now that we need to make normal on the other side of this pandemic, stop tinkering with, and fundamentally change our systems. I'm someone who deeply believes that we have this chance right now, the next two or three year window, in terms of regulations, in terms of our public budgets, in terms of the way that we structure the minute details of what constitutes schooling, we have a great opportunity to change that. And schools all across southwestern Pennsylvania and all across this country have demonstrated what's possible during these last 13 months. And I am full with hope about the potential of what we might achieve in support of public educators and public education. But it's worked. Yes. Advocacy and it's politics and it's and it's it's uh, it's the work. Yeah. Would you mind just talking a little bit because you, you know, knew her well, Joanne Rogers. She wrote such a great foreword. I think people would be interested in your perspective on her and what an amazing woman she was. So Joanne Rogers was very much her own person. Um, she was Fred's wife, yes, but she was also a brilliant concert pianist. She was a brilliant advocate for children. That said, much of her work later in life, especially after Fred passed, was helping to steward his legacy. So to have her trust was absolutely essential for us to even begin this project. The fact that she saw it and felt strongly enough to not only trust us with it, to be, but to become a champion for it, meant so much to us. It still means so much to us today. I mean, to have her blessing helped us write when this book was often very hard to write. So all, I mean, all I can say about Joanne is she was an amazing person. She was a champion for kids. She was a champion for us. She was a champion for this book. We are so, so, so grateful. And I'm, I'm so glad that we have her forward because I think in many ways, Joanne's, uh, her presence is still with us, um, just like Fred's is. And she, she's exactly like you would imagine her to be, Ted, or she was, right? She was just so loving. She had an infectious laugh. She actually could be hilariously funny, but she was also incredibly super candid. And when she said, I love you, as she would say, like, you just felt like, oh my gosh, Mrs. Rogers just, just said she loved me, right? Like, she just was this amazing person in herself. And it was incredibly, it's still sad that we lost her earlier this year. It's hard. Um, that was heartbreaking. So there, there, we're, we're about to wrap up. One of the things your books suggested, and I'm going to ask us collectively as a group to do, is to take a few minutes or moments. We're going to make it, you know, seconds here. But just to think about, each of us to ourselves, people who were kind to us and helped us along the way. So I'd ask everybody, just step back for a second and think back over your life. Who stands out as having helped you and was kind, along the, kind to you along the way? But then you'd go one step further. And, and this is what I'd ask, and I'd be particularly, particularly want to deliver this message to our unbelievable educators that are on this, is that, that you then say, just think about the people you were thinking of and how they feel to know that you thought of them. And it's really quite powerful. And the thing I would say, having talked to lots and lots of audiences of non-educators, is when you ask them who made the difference in their life, they always point to, you know, teachers that made the difference. And it's really that opportunity. I think it's the real blessing of being in the education field is how much you're changing lives. 
So listen, guys, I just want to say again, like a huge congratulations. This book is, you know, I thought as I thinking about what I'd say about this book, and, and I didn't say it in the blurb, and I wish I had, but, but I'll say it tonight, which is there's a lot to love about this book, and there's a lot of love in this book. Mm. And you guys pulled both of those off. So it's really just phenomenal. We do have, you know, Remake Learning, you know, our little videos on our innovation playlist. We'll be trying to figure out ways to carry on this discussion on our What School Could Be platform. But I was particularly excited about tonight because you guys, I mean, there was so much Pittsburgh in the book and Pittsburgh's had such an enormous impact, you know, across the nation, globally, I think. You guys are real leaders. There is just a lot of love and kindness that came through on every single page of this wonderful book. So I hope you... Everybody reads it. I hope this, this uh, it just reaches the people it needs to reach. And I hope all our legislators, <laughs> U.S. Department of Education, State Departments of Education, I hope they all read it. That's for sure. So anyway, so I really appreciate everybody taking time. We had a great, great group tonight. And uh, again, just just deepest, deepest appreciation to the two of you because it's a, it's a real gem. Thank you so much, Ben. I mean, thank you for having us and huge thank you to your audience Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with leading-edge, innovative, and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org and follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Finally, listeners, One of the most important things we can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Thank you so much for listening.